Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited that you are here today. In this week's episode, I chat with Professor Roxanne Pritchard. Roxanne is a neuroscientist who specializes in the connection between sleep and health, and in particular, the harmful impact of poor sleep on adolescent health and well-being. She is a professor of psychology at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. I first came across Roxanne's incredible work when I was reading Johan Ari's latest book, Stolen Focus, and I was blown away by the size of the issue we are facing. Roxanne has a TEDx talk titled Addressing Our Children's Sleep Debt. And this conversation almost didn't happen. After months and months of preparation, I sat down to talk with Roxanne via Zoom. We chatted away. We had the best conversation. And at the end, I went to press stop. And what I heard was this is now being recorded So my first attempt at recording this conversation failed miserably. I did not press record. And so I am so grateful to Roxanne for giving me the opportunity to chat with her again to record this conversation. I cannot tell you how stressed out I was once I realized that I did not press record. So that's a little bit of the behind the scenes, creating a podcast is much, much trickier than one would ever expect. So today's conversation, we discuss the different types of sleep, the way caffeine, sugar, and alcohol impact the quality of our sleep, why fatigue and exhaustion has become the new normal, how sleep deprivation impacts adults and young people differently, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Roxanne Pritchard. Professor Pritchard, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation because I love sleep. I love going to bed at night. I love talking about it because I really believe in the power of a good night's sleep. And since reading your work and becoming aware of your work from reading Stolen Focus, Johan Ari's new book, I thought I have got to talk to Roxanne because this is so important. And the way that we treat sleep is quite problematic. So let's explore it today. Sounds great. So how did you get so interested in the science of sleep? Well, I've always been a fan of sleep myself. Um, But in grad school in a neuroscience program, I heard uh, Dr. Ruth Banka, who was a psychiatrist, describe sleep as one of the great mysteries of the mind. So just to think about it, we've got in probably the most complex organ in our bodies turns itself off for a third of the time and two hours a day we're paralyzed and hallucinating. What's that about? So I've always been sort of fascinated by it from an intellectual perspective, like what is this brain process doing? And from a personal perspective, I've seen the profound impact of negative sleep on my own students and children's um, well-being. And that's how I kind of really connected it as something that we need to talk more about as foundational to health and well-being. 
I could not agree with you more. Was there a time in your teaching career where you noticed we've really got to step up our game when it comes to sleep? Absolutely. My first semester teaching college, I noticed how stressed the students were, how kind of um, anxious they would get over what I would think is kind of minor obstacles would seem like insurmountable things and how other things like body complaints, pains, not being hungry when you're supposed to be hungry, getting sick frequently, how all these things are byproducts of bad sleep, but people just sort of thought that's how you do the world is to grind until you're exhausted, medicated, (laughs) like take caffeine when you're feeling sleepy, take some sort of sedative to get to sleep if you can't, and then just go at it again. What really struck me is how there weren't connecting the bad sleep with how they were feeling in their bodies and minds. So for the students, they were just thinking, this is normal. This is just how I am. I fall asleep in classes. I have energy drinks. This is just normal. And so what's it like for them when they start to realize that there is a better way? First of all, it takes some convincing. Hey, listen, I promise if you prime the pump, you're going to get better results. So it it takes convincing to say, if you invest in your sleep, you are more efficient. It takes you less time to do homework. You don't get sick as much. You have better focus. But once they do, everybody feels so much better really looks like a filter has been removed. Um, Their eyes are brighter, smiles are bigger, kind of more open emotionally and better able to handle stress. So students who kind of go through an intentional process of improving sleep, all of them feel better afterwards. Yeah, I can't remember waking up after really deep quality sleep thinking, oh, I wish I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nobody's like, oh, that was a waste of time. Yeah, we, I've re- remember lots of times where I've woken up thinking, oh, I've got to get to bed earlier. I, this feels rubbish. I don't want to wake up like this. I want to wake up ready for the day and ready to go. So what even is sleep? Sleep is a process of the brain and for the brain. It is something required for life, like food and water and air. If we do not have it, we will die from sleep deprivation. So it's something that is necessary for how our brain works. There are different stages of sleep and the different stages do different things for the brain. So deep, deep, slow wave sleep, when our brain slows down to maybe like one cycle per second, whereas when we're awake and focusing, it's 20. So that slowing down process allows for the brain to literally remove the cellular waste products from the day out of our nervous system, out of our brain and down through our what's called glymphatic system. So we're kind of getting rid of cellular waste. Our brain cells shrink, our cerebrospinal fluid cleanses us almost like a rinse cycle of a dishwasher. So that's one purpose of the sleep, to clean itself of its daily energetic demands and their biochemical products. So that deep clean at night sounds really important. It is really important. And there's good evidence that if you don't do this process over time, that buildup kind of gets in the way of brain processes and can even lead to brain cell death. And so we've known for a long time, bad sleep is a predictor for neurodegeneration, like in Alzheimer's disease, like athletes who have a lot of head injury often end up with dementia and, and mood and personality disorders. And that sleep is a way we can actually help buffer some of that physical trauma 
from getting into the brain permanently. So it sounds really quite healing and replenishing. Absolutely. Sleep is healing. We uh, haven't yet talked about sleep in the immune system, but there's a dynamic too. When your body is in good sleep, that's when we really work on building up our antibodies. That's our body's immune defenses can increase their effectiveness during sleep. And if we're not sleeping well, our body will kind of cut corners to save energy costs. It doesn't invest in immune systems as well when we're not sleeping well. So we probably all noticed when you get run down, that's when you get a cold. That's when you get a flu. Just having better sleep gives you better defense against these pathogens. That is fascinating to think quality sleep can help us in a health response, like with our immunity. Absolutely. And when you're recovering, you need more sleep. You know, I'll often tell students that are trying to do their best and sick and barely there, I'm like, go to bed. <laughs> Your body needs to heal. Go to bed. Sleep is healing. Yes. And I have so many people that I work with and teachers that take themselves right to the edge where, yeah, go to bed. Permission to go to bed, permission to rest, because I guess there's a part of our culture that doesn't value sleep and what it can offer us. So I, I'll disclose I'm a good sleeper. I've been a good sleeper since my late teen years. And when I feel like I need to take a nap, it either means I'm pregnant or I'm fighting off an illness. So when I get that, like, wow, I feel really sleepy, I go to bed. And most of the times I don't actually get sick. So I'm not sure if just in that extra sleep, I did what I needed to do to fight off um, invading pathogens. But I know to honor that is health affirming. And to deny that is setting your body up for kind of bad consequences down the line. I love that idea of honoring our bodies and honoring those whispers where for a lot of people, I don't think we honor those whispers. I think we try to mute them and put them to the side and use stimulants or sedatives or anything we can get our hands on, depending on what end of the day, to try and regulate ourselves and not listen to our body. We're not quite connected to the sleep that our body really needs. I think that kind of part of, of mindfulness and connection with um, our body minds is really, really important. And it's not a skill necessarily that's taught. I think we're more taught to ignore our body's demands and grind through it or medicate it than to listen deeply to what we're saying. So sometimes I joke, I have a really easy job. My job is to tell you something that deep down, you know, to be true, you want more sleep, you would feel better with more sleep. This is me giving you permission and data to say, give yourself the sleep you need. Yes, like permission. Give yourself the gift of sleep. It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to go anywhere special to do it. You don't need coaches necessarily. Give yourself the best chances to get a good quality sleep. So we've talked about that deep sleep. Are there other types of sleep? Yeah, so REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep is a chance for our brains to be very active in a space that doesn't have our consciousness getting in the way. So during REM sleep, when we have a lot of dreaming, we are going through our day's experiences. We're going through the threats, the emotions, what we've learned. And we're also doing a lot of forgetting. So in some ways, like PTSD is over-remembering one of the best predictors of who develops PTSD, for example, if they're going off to war, is how bad they were sleeping before. So people who have good sleep can sort of 
process, compartmentalize, get rid of some of those kind of traumatic memories. And, and that's part of the healing process of sleep. You don't necessarily want the most important or the most embarrassing event from every day in your life being on a flash forward for your experience. So some things it's good to kind of <laughs> get rid of those memories and, and REM sleep as part of that process. So REM sleep is really doing a bit of hard lifting for us. If we've got a problem, we've got something that's really biting away at us. If we go to sleep, we may get some traction with that when we wake up. Absolutely. And there's a lot of great studies that show you have insights upon awakening. So you might have a creative solution to a problem. You might figure out, oh, that wasn't a problem I should even be dealing with at all. I think one of the myths that people have is you should never go to bed angry. I think that's bollocks. You should go to bed when you're tired. You should not try to do complex emotional problem solving when you are exhausted. We do something called catastrophizing when we're really short on sleep. <laughs> so I can remember this as a college student. I think I got a bad grade on an exam, which in my head meant I would fail the class, not get into grad school, live in my parents' basement forever, never find a partner. Like I had gone full on life story from this one exam. And that is the process called catastrophizing, where you think of the worst possible thing that could happen. And that is an annoying process that happens as a lot of people are trying to wind down for the night. We're not at our best when we're tired. We can do a lot of the hefty lifting actually in our sleep in that re dream world. I'm laughing because there were plenty of times where I was at high school and I was starting to catastrophize, you know, I missed out on a sports team or I couldn't quite do my essay or something was happening with friends and I'd feel completely overwhelmed and I'd have a chat to mum and her advice was always go to bed, we'll talk about it in the morning. And it's amazing how in the morning things just don't have the same intensity as what they did the night before. Right. REM sleep is sort of a chance for an emotional reset button that gives you clarity and kind of reconnection. So having that chance for your brain to kind of process through different scenarios is constructive. That's something I try to get my students to realize a lot that sleep isn't wasted time. It is training time. It is learning time. Like you can study during the day, but to get the physical brain changes you need to make something relatively permanent, that requires you to be offline and sleep. So sleep isn't wasted time. Sleep is productive time. That's so important to think about because we hear a lot about neuroplasticity, but we don't actually hear about how important the sleep element is for that learning and growth. Absolutely. And, and the genes that underlie a lot of those neuroplastic changes, making new receptors, growing new branches off of dendrites, those are enhanced with sleep. Your brain kind of needs to be offline so it can do a lot of the tinkering and improvements that it needs to, to adapt to our changing world and changing social environments. So we've got this superpower available to us to be able to think better, to be able to problem solve, to be able to self-regulate at our fingertips. And it sounds like sleep has just so many benefits for us. And it's something I wish um, came up more um, in conversations with healthcare providers and counselors. Uh, often we don't really get a 
full assessment of how things are doing. So I mentioned that time I was catastrophizing in college and I wasn't sleeping well then. If I saw a counselor then, they might think I have an anxiety disorder based on the incredible line of irrational thinking and how quick I was to cry and shake with concern. And it's not that it was, this is a sign of sleep deprivation is it puts your body in a state that's more prone to anxiety and depression. So before you try to figure anything else out with kids uh, or people of any age, you've got to get their sleep straight. So I'm starting to think maybe instead of asking people, how are you? We could just ask, how are you sleeping? And that might tell us a little bit. Mm, The formal greeting in Botswana is, hello, how did you wake today? And I love that. I absolutely love that because I know when I wake from a disrupted sleep, when I've tossed and turned, when I've been up for whatever reasons, I'm just not the best self. I'm very impatient. I get cranky. I feel like I'm in reaction to the whole day and I just feel a little bit edgy. But the days when I've had quality sleep, I just wake up with a lightness with this sense of space and tolerance. Like I can just manage different things. And I've learned to realize that when I'm talking with, if it's my children or my husband or colleagues, whoever I'm talking with, to be mindful of how my sleep is impacting my relationships. And I also, when I do a public speaking event and there's going to be lots of people there, I know for that public speaking event to go well, to be the top of my game, I need to have really good sleep because I know that in that moment, the right words will come. If I've had really good sleep, I'm much more confident. The right analogies will come. It'll just flow. But if I've had disrupted sleep, it just doesn't come as quick. It's sort of a bit slower off the gate. Is that normal? Yep, that is totally normal. So our brain needs that good sleep for us to have the sort of most efficient processing, the quickest reaction time, a more space for creativity and and a lower level of anxiety. So what's the link between anxiety and sleep? Is there a link or do people who experience anxiety struggle with sleep? Yeah, and it's sort of an adaptive process. So from an evolutionary perspective, there's no way humans would survive if we just were unconscious for eight hours. That's it. Doesn't matter if the baby's crying. Doesn't matter if the house is on fire. We're sleeping. So we have a natural ability to go without sleep. New parents, you know this, you lose 42 days of sleep the first year you're a parent. Your sleep doesn't return to baseline until your kid's six. So it's it's a long slog, but we can do it, but it comes at a cost. And one of those costs is increased anxiety. So our brain interprets lack of sleep as an emergency event. Maybe there's a fire. Maybe there's an intruder. Um, Maybe there's an illness that you need to kind of give extra attention to somebody in your family for. And with that added threat, your body naturally wants to protect you by increasing your sympathetic nervous system, increasing your fight or flight responses. This increases your blood pressure, your heart rate, your blood sugar, and your sense of vigilance, your sense of something might be wrong. There's something might be wrong here. So if you're finding yourself in a headspace where you just feel very anxious and like a sense of gloom, go back and check and see how well am I sleeping? Because I might be giving my body the wrong messages that it's not a safe environment for me to be in. And that's going to elevate your anxiety. Well, that's such an interesting cycle to think about because if you're 
feeling anxious and you've been wound up for the day and then sleep may become something that you're anxious about because you're not getting great quality sleep. And then if that's happening, you might awake to different noises more readily and it sounds like it can be a vicious cycle. And then what seems to happen is once we get into these cycles, we start to intervene ourselves and try to prop ourselves up. And so I guess the first thing that a lot of us use is coffee, you know, wake up straight to the coffee, like the coffee helps us to wake up. So can you explain what coffee does and the impact it has on our neurobiology? So caffeine, which is one of the main active ingredients of coffee, is a stimulant drug. And the way it works is it's an antagonist. It blocks the receptor for adenosine. Adenosine is a molecule like adenosine triphosphate, ATP, you might have remembered from long ago in biology class. As we're burning through our ATP to fuel our brain, we have the byproduct of adenosine. And as it's building up, our brain has a little sensor to see how much circulating adenosine we have. And when that gets to a critical level, we go to sleep no matter what we're doing. So that's one message I want to get across is if you are trying to teach a class and there's a kid who's falling asleep, that kid is not being disrespectful or rude. That kid is responding to a biological necessity of a buildup of sleepy brain chemicals. So what caffeine does is it blocks our ability to know those sleepy chemicals are there. It's not giving us more energy. It's like putting a post-it note across our fuel gauge so we don't know that we're running out of energy. Of course, that doesn't work in the long term because we're still burning through adenosine. So when the caffeine wears up, we're more tired than we were to begin with. So we're kind of deluding ourselves into the fact that, oh, we're not tired. We're good. I've got energy to burn. We're good to go. And then when the post-it flies off, oh, I actually am a bit tired. I might need to reach for another coffee to get me going. Right. And if you're reaching for that coffee too late, because the half-life of caffeine can be like six to eight hours, that's going to interfere with your sleep. That makes you tireder the next day. So caffeine really should be limited to the morning hours and not taken in the afternoon or evening. And if you feel like, oh, I need so much caffeine to get through the day, you don't need caffeine, you need sleep. I, uh, there's a popular energy drink that's five-hour energy. I'm like, hey, I can give you 16-hour energy. Like, screw that five-hour energy. Do you want 16-hour energy? Here's how you do it. You sleep for eight, then you get that 16. That's for adults. Kids have a different, <laughs> different relationship there. For me, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I notice that when I'm tired, I reach for sugar. I'm reaching for sugar in the morning when I'm not normally reaching for it. That's another sort of adaptation of being sleep deprived and stressed. Your body's like, "Uh oh, we've got an emergency. We're not sure when we're ever going to eat again. You better have as much calories you can right now. So in times that I've been stressed, I definitely have noticed I reach more for fatty foods, quick bites. I'll just eat a quick grilled cheese rather than make a salad, right? You can also think about food cravings. If you stay up too late, you want a whole nother second dinner. And it's not like a roast beef chicken salad kind of dinner. You want pizza or some high calorie, quick energy food. There's been some great research on adolescents who are sleep deprived. And those that do um, have these sleep deprivation, they're eating all hundreds more calories of sugar. That makes so much sense because it sounds like our body, or maybe not our body, the way we interpret our body, is we get confused between sleepy and hungry. And there's a biochemical reason for that. When you are sleepy, 
your brain is like, you need more energy because you're obviously going through something. So it is decreasing your amount of leptin, which is a hormone that says you're full. It's increasing your amount of Greenland, which is a hormone that says you're hungry. And so between these two, you're like, I need 800 more calories today. So it is tricking you into thinking that you need to eat more. Gosh, I can't think of any kind of health program, weight loss program, anything that talks about sleep. It sounds like it's an important way to regulate what we're putting in our, into our bodies. If it's coffee, if it's sugar. Absolutely. And I wish physicians would talk more about it because not only does it help with cravings, it also helps manage your blood sugar better when you're sleeping well, because part of that emergency flight or fight response is to get your liver to start using its stored energy source and put those into sugar forms. We get more blood sugar spikes and crashes, which sort of can wear out our insulin receptors when, um, when we're not sleeping well. So one way, I mean, for a lot of people, it's a lot easier to improve their sleep than it is to change their BMI. Sleep is something you can change tonight. You can get better sleep. Yes. And it sounds like we spend so much time in the day telling ourselves we're not sleepy, like we're good, we've got energy. And then we have the battle at the other end of the day of now I want to go to sleep, but I'm still wired and I'm not quite tired because we engage in other behaviors that are keeping us up at the other end of the day. So can you tell us a little bit about what alcohol does to our neurobiology at the end of the day? And remind me also to talk about how we've really been reducing our sleep period or time in bed too. And that almost puts more pressure like, okay, I've got six hours opportunity for sleep starting now. That gives us performance anxiety about sleep, frankly, and it makes it less likely to happen. So what alcohol does and the best time of day to drink alcohol, even though it's not really healthy for you, but to have a drink uh, around happy hour is going to give your brain enough time to metabolize that alcohol where it won't interfere with your sleep. If you're drinking more of a nightcap to get to sleep, what that is doing is giving you the false sense of falling asleep maybe more quickly, but it's going to fragment your sleep. You're going to be more likely to wake up in the middle of the night and you're not going to have the normal sleep architecture or the balance, the really delicate balance between slow wave sleep and REM sleep you would do um, if your brain was sober at the time of going to sleep. So it sounds like that dishwasher process is not quite complete. It's like the dodgy dishwashing tablet that we're like, oh, I've got to put this on the cycle again. Haven't quite, haven't quite got there. It's not clean enough. Yeah. And I'm not sure how many people use like fitness trackers or something, but on uh, like days, vacation days where I'm drinking every day, please don't tell my children I said that, but (laughs) my heart rate is like 10 points higher all through the night. So I know physiologically, it's not the same quality deep press because frankly, I have a toxin in my bloodstream interfering with this really sort of sacred biochemical process of sleep quite interesting to think of it about an additional toxin and then so that's increasing the load and to show that that evidence in the increase in heart rate that it is really impacting us and so what are some other things that people do in the evenings to try and get themselves into sleep some things are effective and some things aren't so effective I think a lot of people aren't really comfortable with the quiet thoughts in their mind and that's a bigger problem but They'll do like, let's watch TV rather than just sort of sit quietly and fall asleep. 
Because if you have maybe anxiety or depressive disorder that's clouding some of those thought processes, it can be kind of a scary process. The idea that you lay down for 10, 20 minutes and just kind of drift off, that doesn't feel comfortable for a lot of people. Uh, So they'll try to sort of crowd that out with watching TV or something like that. Problem with TV and other sort of electronics is the light from that can suppress our melatonin and it can delay when we're going to sleep. It can also be kind of exciting. Like you want to watch another episode. You you want to do these things, which is the opposite of what you should be doing to try to quiet and convince your brain like you're in a safe, comfortable space. Nothing to worry about. Just relax and drift off. I'm starting to notice this clear link between how we're in our environment and what messages we're giving our body compared to what our body actually needs. So to go to bed with the TV on to feel like, oh, that's going to settle me, that's going to help me get to sleep, but maybe that's actually disrupting our sleep or it's reducing our period of sleep because we're in a habit of watching just one more episode and one more episode and then over time, our average sleep is probably shortened, like we're just getting less and less and less. Is that something that's occurring at a population level? Compared to our ancestors, 100 years ago, we are getting about 20% less sleep a night. So back before the Wi-Fi, back before a lot of electricity and sleep, um, people would normally spend 10 hours a night in bed. And I I mentioned that because that's the opportunity for sleep. That's your sleep period. And if you were suddenly woken up at three, which is a very normal physiological process to wake up throughout the night, even if you're up for an hour, maybe you'd go, I don't know, look after the chickens, break up the ice. We're in Minnesota. Everything's iced over for the animals or something. Stoke the fire, then go back to bed. But you would have 10 hours there to get a good seven, eight hours of sleep. There wasn't that pressure of, oh my goodness, I have five and a half hours. I better get to sleep now. So that's another thing. I think people think that they have bad sleep if they wake up in the night, but that's totally normal thing to do. Oh, and what you're highlighting here is that, you know, our performance culture, we're always performing. I talk about the P's, performing, perfecting, pleasing, pretending, producing, all of these things. We're taking that into our sleep. Sleep is another thing that we're feeling like we've got to perform at and be good at. And then so we're using things that are probably not that helpful to feel like we're good at it or we're getting there. And that's our routine. And it's quite fascinating to think about it like that. I think, I mean, there's an entire industry trying to sell you stuff to hack your sleep. I wear a fitness tracker mostly because personally I find it motivating to see how my cardiovascular performance changes with steps and different exercises. I don't give much credit to what it tells me about the sleep stuff. I rather go with how my body feels, but some people are are developing sort of anxiousness about what their sleep trackers are telling them about their sleep. That's not good. And coming back to earlier in the conversation, it's not honoring what our body needs and our body's needs change depending on what we've been doing, how hard we've been working our brain and how much we need that space for growth and for learning. And it takes me to this other space of, you know, a lot of young people, they're working really hard. So they're working really hard in their studies. They're working really hard at their sports. They're feeling like they have to please and perform and they're not getting to sleep because they're not getting home too late. And then other things start to creep in, some other habits that are starting to creep in. Have you noticed that in your research? 
Absolutely. There's such a grind culture. And one of the ways I'd like to push back against that is to find really high achieving individuals and ask them, hey, how are you doing this pre-med school curriculum and doing your sport and doing your job? Almost all of them are doing it by really honoring their bodies, sleeping when they need to sleep, being intentional with how they use their time. That can be inspiring for students to be like, oh, you do sleep eight hours. So, And I also like to use um, athletes. So really successful athletes, they sleep. Not sure how much you follow the Winter Olympics, but our hometown hero, Jesse Diggins, who has won a lot of cross-country skiing world championships, she keeps saying if she could go back and tell her high school self one thing, it would be to sleep more and just how much gains can get for meeting your body's needs for sleep. I think what's hard to imagine if you're in a bad state is how much better you would be when you're sleeping well. So you can be so much more efficient with your time and have more clarity of purpose and intentionality when you're sleeping well. And so you're not having so much wasted time. Yes. When we're not sleeping well, there is wasted time. We're a bit scattered. We're not doing things properly. We're there, but we're not quite there. But when we're well rested, we're there and we're present and we're engaged with life. And that's something that I've really noticed in the students that I work with is that when they're well rested, you can see it in their face. And I can, I know in my own children, like I know when they've woken up and they've had a good sleep, like they look like they've had a good sleep versus when we wake up and you're like, oh, you need to go back to bed. Yeah, you really, really can see it in people, the the shine in their eyes and the calm sense of self that they have. Um, It it really comes through. And so when I'm thinking about sleep, something that comes to mind for me is we've got this culture of using assistance to get to sleep. So some of it can be helpful. So it could be mindfulness and meditation, something where you can soothe all of these thoughts. Some of it has been unhelpful. We've highlighted, you know, TVs in rooms, probably not so helpful. Probably phones in bed, I'm guessing, not so helpful. Not so helpful. And then alcohol, not so helpful. And also, what do you think about medications like sleeping pills and our relationship with them. Obviously, there's a time and place for them, but what can be problematic with their use? So I don't know how over-medicated they are in Australia, but the United States, you have so many people being prescribed prescription sleeping aids when that is not the problem at hand. The number one gold standard treatment for insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, where you take a really close look at your patterns of sleep and your thoughts about sleep. And you think about, all right, when is the sleep time for my body? What cues am I giving my body about when it's time to sleep? What time, what cues is my, are my body, is my body giving me? And you kind of get a better understanding of that process and you develop some tools for when, when you can't sleep, you know what to do to handle that situation. So that is the number one best outcome treatment for insomnia It's important to get at the root of why you're not sleeping well. It's never that you don't have enough GABA in your brain, which is basically what a sleeping pill does, is it enhances, kind of like alcohol, it enhances the set of tone in your brain. What's much more likely is maybe you have something like sleep apnea that's never been diagnosed and, and you can't sleep and breathe effectively at the same time. Or maybe you are going through menopause and you can't get like the temperature regulated in your body in the room and a point that is good for sleep. 
Or maybe you are so stressed out about your family members that that thought process needs a way of calming down. And that's something that is better done through talk therapy than through medication. Once again, maybe we're putting post-its on situations. Maybe having the TV in the room is a post-it or coffee in the morning or alcohol. And not to demonize any of these things, but when we become dependent on it, when we rely on it to get us up and then to get us to bed because we're not honouring what our body can naturally do if we give it the time and space and if we listen to those whispers that, I'm tired, let's go slowly, let's go to bed. Because I know for a long time for me, when I felt tired, I was like, so, play on, keep going. That's not relevant information in my life. But now I've got to a point of, I feel tired, I'm going to have a rest been a busy day I'm going to have a rest after lunch and I just noticed that going into the second half of the day I perform so much better compared to just play on just keep going just keep moving and it's quite interesting because my dad often says you know I was doing the strategic nap way before people were talking about it he would always have would have lunch just a 10 minute back up and off and it was sort of just a part of our house and so it's interesting to notice that for us as adults when we're tired We feel dozy and we look for bed. Looking at our young people, sometimes when they're tired, they go a different way. (laughs) They can get hyperactive and overexcited and big emotions and don't want to go to sleep. So is that just something in our development? Yes. Kids, a lack of inhibition when they're tired is that you have more like big movements and big emotions that are what they need to do to kind of fight against staying awake. So it's a developmentally just different phenomenon for children. And what we're seeing is that a lot of kids are kind of falsely diagnosed with ADHD when they're just not getting good quality sleep. And the sleep would fix a lot of the attention and behavior problems. And sleep is such a big thing for young people. I know I've got a four and two-year-old at the moment. It's light at the end of the day and I'm putting down the blinds and I'm trying to get them to sleep. And it's quite a struggle to get them to sleep at seven o'clock so they can get the hours that they need. Where in winter, I sometimes put them to bed at 6.37 and it's wonderful. And it's a struggle that lots of parents talk to me about to get their young people to get the sleep that they need. And then Also, teachers are talking about it because students are tired. They are falling asleep in class. They don't have the energy. And throw in all the remote learning, the energy to be on screens all day, every day. How can we help support our young people to sleep better? I think one of the first things we need to do is look and see what time are we asking them to perform? So I don't know what time middle schools and and, uh, high schools are starting in Australia. Is there any kind of legislation around that? Well, mostly it's sort of around that 8.30, quarter to nine. That's traditional. That's really helpful. And the majority of high schools in the United States are nowhere near that. They're much early, like 7.30, 7.45. So that's against uh, teens' biological rhythm. So one, just kind of saying, are we making sure that we're having students perform at a time that's consistent with their biology, which frankly wants to be asleep from maybe 11 p.m.? Like not, and you can't make a 14 year old go to bed at 7 p.m. It's just not in the biology. It's not going to happen. And to get the sleep they need, you need to let them sleep when their bodies want to sleep. How else can we help? I think giving kids 
teaching tools about how to deal with like anxious feelings and how to self-soothe. We just talk a lot about that with babies. I've read so many books about how to get your two-year-old to self-soothe. But when the teens come, there's a whole new ballpark of big feelings that you need to kind of learn to relax into. Um, so doing some psychoeducation about sort of recognizing stressful feelings how to do some mindfulness exercises to get to sleep is going to be helpful too. And paying attention to, are your kids having a lot of caffeine? I feel like there's a whole sugar industry trying to turn coffee into milkshakes to get kids addicted to them. Yeah. Don't let the kids have like a triple frappo, whatever smoothie thing with caffeine. That's not helping their sleep. So interesting. And what just came to my mind is maybe we also need to be role models, sleep role models to like, yay, it's sleep time. We like sleep. Almost narrate in the morning, oh, I've woken up, like I feel good because I've had a good sleep and start to show as adults what it's like to live in a world where people do get quality sleep and we don't have to rely on caffeine in the morning and alcohol at the end of the day, that we can honour our systems and get to bed and wake up. We could create an environment where it's the new normal to honor our bodies. Absolutely. And I know that my kids know that. And if my kid were ever to say, look, I just feel way too sleepy to go to school right now. I honestly would say, okay, clearly something is up. Go back to bed. So important that we start to listen to these whispers instead of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of students that I've taught that always be asleep in the last lessons of the day. And they got embarrassed by it because they just couldn't possibly keep their eyes open. Then to think about it, they've been up training at 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, if they're swimmers, whatever their sport is, and then they're expected to perform academically and then they're doing their stuff at the end of the day. And we're really putting some young people in a position where they're going against their biology. They're going against what their body is telling them. So we're training them to go against what their body needs. And in pro athletes, they have big long naps in their day's schedule to kind of compensate for the increased demands on their body. Another thing I like to tell students or anybody is, is what is your voice telling you in your mind? If your mind is, I'm so tired, I can't wait to take a nap, I'm so tired. That takes up so much mental real estate. You don't have a full mind to engage in other things at that point. Your brain is crying out for something it needs to live. It's like, trying to flip on every single emergency alert dial there is. And that's not compatible with sort of the creative learning process that we want people to be doing as part of their growth. That idea of brain real estate. And imagine if our real estate's been taken up with, I need a coffee, I need a coffee, I need a coffee. Oh, I'm tired. Oh no, I need a coffee, I need a coffee. Oh, I just need to get to at the end of the day because I need a wine to take this edge off. That we're just constantly putting all these post-it notes all over ourselves, all over our day. And eventually we have to get to a point where like, this is not working. This is not sustainable. Something has to give because I can't continue to sacrifice my sleep and my mental health like this. And we have such a grind culture. It's sometimes the first time people have heard that. It's fine for you. It's what you need to take full sleep your body needs. You'll be able to give more when you have those soul brain needs taken care of. Oh, without doubt. I was a different person with newborns when I wasn't sleeping. Like it's just different. I couldn't think straight, reaching for sugar 
getting upset about stuff that if I had slept, it wouldn't have even come on my radar. Like we're just different people. So imagine what the world would be like if we got serious about sleep. I remember a time when I was driving home with my newborn and I felt where I usually keep my keys in my pocket. I couldn't find them. I looked in my purse. I couldn't find them. I figured we would be locked out of the house. It was a snowstorm. I was running out of glass. I was crying. Everything was coming to a catastrophe because I couldn't find my keys, which were in the ignition of the car I was driving. So that level of of sleep deprivation cripples you mentally. So hard. (laughs) And it's so hard when you don't join the dots that, oh, I'm just tired. It's so hard if you then turn that into, I'm losing my mind. I can't, what's wrong with me? My life is going to hell in a handbasket. Instead of pull the brakes on, go to bed. Yeah, and I've been embarrassed by how much I forget of that, even with my children. I remember once my elder daughter um, had gotten back from a sleepover, (laughs) I put in air quotes, Um, and the next day she was just kind of snappy and mean, and I was about to snap back at her before I realized, wait a minute, (laughs) how much sleep did you girls actually get last night? All right, just go to bed. (laughs) We don't need to have this conversation right now about your music practice. You just need to sleep. It it took me a good couple minutes to connect the dots, even though that's what I think about every single day. Yes. And to think also when we're reaching for that, "Mm, maybe I could do with more sleep, to start to notice these little things that we do to try and keep ourselves awake because we just haven't had the right sleep. So I'm thinking when we haven't had the right amount of sleep for our body, probably some obvious cues could be reaching for sugar, reaching for caffeine, reaching for soft drinks, reaching for drama even, like a bit of drama in your life, like just even reaching for a fight. You have more fights when you haven't had that sleep. And for people to just start to notice what's their profile when they haven't had enough sleep? What's their sleep? What's How does it manifest for them? What are three obvious cues you haven't had enough sleep? For me, If I haven't had enough sleep, the three obvious things is I'm not as tolerant. My window of tolerance is much narrower. I reach for sugar and I just think about sleep. Like I just want to get to bed. Yeah. Another cue you can pay attention to if you're always cold. So when you're sleep deprived, your body turns down your metabolism. So you're actually burning fewer calories and you're cold most of the time. So that can be another cue. Being cold is a way your body's like, hey, don't you want to dive under some covers and (laughs) sleep? This one's a trickier one to describe, but maybe some listeners will relate. Feeling kind of just boxed in, feeling like you're, you don't have options. You're not like you're just stuck is a feeling that is accentuated by sleep deprivation. And it can be kind of a precursor for some major psychological distress is feeling just stuck where you can't think of a solution. That's another sign that you should go to sleep. (laughs) your brain doesn't have the creative space and it's so amazing once we become more skilled that we can just say it's fine I just need to go to bed earlier like we don't need to then create more story more drama and just give ourselves permission that we're human and humans need sleep and how about we just go to bed and we'll talk about it tomorrow Yeah, even in the middle of the day, the time you would probably spend going to get a coffee, you could lay down in your office, put on 20 minutes of soothing music. Even if you don't fall asleep, just kind of that rest is enough for you to fight off some of that sleep deprivation and feel renewed. That is such good advice. And there's another thing that pops up a lot when we talk about sleep, and this is melatonin. 
melatonin gets a lot of airplay and it can be really helpful for some people and problematic for others. Can you give us an understanding of what it is, why it's used and how it is used? Yes. Melatonin is a hormone sort of like insulin or testosterone. It's a chemical the body makes to indicate that processes need to happen in the body. So melatonin is sometimes called the vampire hormone because it only comes out at night. Uh, It is a hormone that marks darkness. It is a hormone that says this is our traditional sleep opportunity. And it's a little different based on different people's morningness or eveningness. So I'm a morning person. My melatonin kicks in a lot earlier in the evening than my husband's, who's a night person. My elder daughter would stay up till midnight. Easy. My younger daughter starts to fall apart around nine. So their melatonins um, increase production at different times a day. What it does is it sort of amplifies the the biological idea that it's sleep time. It's not like a knockout drug like alcohol, but it's something that just kind of nudges your body that it's time to have this quiet, restful period. I'm not comfortable with people just over the counter taking a lot of melatonin. We don't know what the long-term consequences of taking hormones at whatever levels are. What I am comfortable with is maximizing our own melatonin by really limiting our light exposure after sunset. So just like they do mood lighting in fancy restaurants, I do that too in our house. And that kind of helps tell your brain like, oh, the the sun has set. (laughs) People who go camping have their body's natural melatonin levels restored and regulated. So it's, it's really being like disconnected from our natural cycles where we're having this kind of not a powerful internal melatonin signal. It's so interesting to think about light and how much it really does impact our sleep and wake cycle. And to think about when we are camping, you do get into these lovely sleeps, like really lovely restful sleeps, and you wake up as the sun wakes up and you it's like you recalibrate again because sometimes our calibration gets completely off with the natural cycle of outside and then what's happening inside our bodies. Absolutely. And and I think there, I mean, I <laughs> we were talking earlier about kind of the long photo period in summer. So we're both kind of at higher and lower latitudes. So in the summer, Minnesota doesn't get dark till 10. We might not go to bed as a family till 11. So before school starts, I take my kids camping to pull back their circadian rhythm more in line with um, the natural world. And that is really helpful. That is such a good tip. I'm going to think about when I go camping now, actually what's happening with the light and how that's impacting myself and then the people around me. It's just so fascinating. So for people listening, what would be your go-to tips if you're in a cycle of just post-its everywhere, uncalibrated to your natural cycle of sleep and wake? How would you get started? I would get started with a really honest conversation with either self or healthcare provider about what's going on in your life. And so you might have a sleep disorder that's undiagnosed that you need to pay attention to. You might have some major stressors in your life that need sort of attending to or dealing with. And then thinking about how are you honoring your body's messages to yourself? When you start to feel sleepy, what does that feel like in your body? And what do you do in that circumstance? Do you feel like you have a safe, comfortable place to sleep? This is something we haven't talked about yet. 
I think it's got a bad name, sleep divorces. Sometimes couples end up sleeping in different bedrooms. um, And there might be some shame associated with that, with the idea that good couples sleep together. Often you get better sleep if you're not necessarily next to somebody who's making a lot of noise and temperature is dysregulating yours. So think about like, what would I really need to prioritize my sleep? And how can I make that happen? How can I schedule the rest of the world around my sleep? Um, and I say, give it just two weeks, give it two weeks of really investing in your sleep. And, and that should be enough for you to see if things are better. Well, that's such good advice. And it is interesting to think about who says that couples have to sleep in the same bed all the time. You know, families may function better if both adults are well rested. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think that, you know, the common narrative if you think about it from a neurobiology perspective, if two people are sleeping in a bed and they're not getting good quality sleep, that's not going to be helpful for anybody. That is correct. I love that you brought that up. So to wrap this conversation up, Roxanne, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for doing that? I am. So I am inspired by? I am inspired by Trisha Hersey, the nap ministry on social media. She is a theologian who draws from black liberation and womanist philosophies who really, really says rest is central and it is part of your human dignity. And this whole grind culture is a legacy of inequality and oppression. So she's a fantastic speaker. Follow her on social media. It's amazing how you can kind of reframe as rest as a basic human right that you are taking and that's pushing against systems of oppression. Oh, I love thinking of it like that. When life feels hard, I need perspective shift. So sometimes that's as simple as getting out of my house office and going for a walk. I I love to mushroom hunt along the Mississippi River. It's my favorite place. Sometimes perspective shift needs really careful examination of my thinking with the help of a therapist, minister, good friend who's like a, a moral true north on a compass. So I need something that shifts where I am. And an underrated skill is? Making people feel welcome. I feel, I know it when I see it, and it's such a powerful feeling to feel welcome in the presence of somebody. And I am looking forward to? Uh, Two things. One is uh, vacationing. It's been a long pandemic. (laughs) It continues to be a long pandemic. Um, But I just want to get in a car with my girls, drive around Lake Superior, camp, swim, hike for two weeks without looking at a work thing. Oh, that sounds magic. Yeah. (laughs) Global level, I'm looking forward to really pushing against a lot of the systems of inequality that make it literally impossible for a lot of people who don't have as much socioeconomic capital to get good sleep. So that's another part. Roxanne, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I have learned so much from this conversation. I thought that I love sleep at the start. Now it's like a whole new level. Like I've got a whole new level of commitment to sleep and just how important it is for me and the people that I love. Thank you for having me. Sleep well. 
How warm and wise is Professor Pritchard? And I hope this conversation has inspired you to reassess the way that you think about sleep and to get curious about your sleep story. If you haven't watched Roxanne's TEDx talk titled Addressing Our Children's Sleep Debt, I highly recommend that you do. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to finish the following two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember. And number two, the action I will take to support my well-being is. To keep informed of what I'm creating and what I am loving, books, podcasts, shows, subscribe to the Thought of the Week email. I am currently working on a range of wellbeing masterclasses that are designed to help you apply what you're learning to your everyday life because often there's a gap between what we know and what we do. And so these classes are designed to help you bridge that gap of the knowing and the doing. If you're looking for a wellbeing speaker to speak at your next school, organization, or community event, please reach out. I love to share wellbeing education that makes sense with a range of audiences. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.